So we're partway into the biblical story, and God has led the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, given them the law, given them a land, everything that they need to thrive so that they can be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That's what the chosen people are all about. But there's one huge glitch, and that is that the people keep turning away from God. They are disloyal and they are disobedient, and so the land is filled with violence and evil. But then there is this lovely story of Ruth, Ruth the Moabite. Before we turn to Ruth 1, let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Oh God, how we thank you for your word and for your revelation fully in Jesus Christ and the presence of your spirit with us now wherever we are. We ask that your spirit would help us to hear your word and that my words would shed more light on what you are saying to all of us today. Amen. All right, the little book of Ruth right after Judges. We're going to be in the first chapter, the first 18 verses, and then the last verse of that chapter. Listen to God's word to you. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Chilion also died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughter-in-law from the country, daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. And then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. 
Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Then the last verse in that chapter. So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the gift of God's word. Thanks be to God. Wow, those are really, really difficult times. Really, really hard days for them, and you can hear it right in those opening verses. There wasn't stable government, so there wasn't leadership that was stable. It was the time of the judges. There were natural disasters going on. There was a famine in the land, displacing people. And then you've got Naomi's tragic situation with the death of not only her husband, but then her two sons as well. And there was no security for them. For women, for widows in particular, you were very vulnerable because you needed to have a man to take care of you. You know, we know in the Old Testament that Job is about suffering. But you know, it's also true of Naomi. Her life, as we hear it, is a life of much suffering. There was an elderly man who was in the hospital and he was in bed and he was very, very sick. And his wife of 55 years was right there by his bedside. He whispered to her and he said, is that you, Ethel, at my side again? And she said, yes, dear. He said softly, Remember years ago when I was in the veterans hospital? You were there with me then. You were with me when we lost everything in a fire. And then, Ethel, when we were poor, you were with me then too. And he sighed very deeply and he said, I tell you, Ethel, you're bad luck. <laughs> Terrible. I think that's the way Naomi felt. I think she felt like she was bad luck. And ironically enough, her name means pleasant and happy. And when she goes back uh, to her people, if you keep reading in this chapter, the people see her and they say, is that Naomi? She says, don't call me Naomi. No longer pleasant or happy. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me, she says. And yet, into her darkness, a light comes. I think of the words of Zechariah in Luke 1, when he says, By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. God's light comes to Naomi. In the most unusual way, in the person of Ruth, the Moabite. Now, the reason that's unusual is because the people despised the Moabites. They were actually commanded to despise the Moabites. I want to read to you out of Deuteronomy 23, uh, verses 3 through 6. No Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. 
even to the 10th generation, none of their descendants shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you with food and water on your journey out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, son of Beor, from Pether of Mesopotamia, to curse you. You shall never promote their welfare or their prosperity as long as you live. Wow. Okay. But Ruth is a Moabite. And that is so clear throughout this story because she's not even called Ruth for most of the story. She's always called Ruth the Moabite. So it's through this lowly and despised foreigner, this immigrant, that God's light is shining into Naomi's darkness. It is really a sweet story. You get the sense of her devotion in the passage that I read to you. Uh, it's, it's devotion that's like a marriage, literally. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. She is bound and determined not to leave Naomi's side. And then when they do get back to Bethlehem, the barley harvest has started. She's devoted to serving Naomi, to being obedient to Naomi, to doing whatever it takes to take care of her. And so they had this practice of letting the poor go behind the harvesters to glean what was left over. They're poor. So she goes out there from dawn to dusk and just slaves the whole time, making sure that they have enough to eat. And by God's grace, she ends up gleaning in the field of a man named Boaz, who happened to be related to Naomi's um, deceased husband, Elimelech. And he notices Ruth, the Moabite, and he has heard about her kindness to her mother-in-law. So he makes a point of protecting her and taking care of her. And then when Ruth, the Moabite, really puts herself at his mercy, at his feet, he could have abused her and taken advantage of her, but he does not do that. Instead, he honors her, honors the family, he marries her, and then the story ends with Ruth the Moabite getting pregnant, having a son named Obed, who turns out to be the grandfather of King David and the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus. This is how God shows up the biblical story wants us to know it's in the lowly and despised. And we need this story. We need this reminder if we're going to be ready to receive Jesus. The way God's light shines into our darkness, our way to peace. And so we have Ruth. We have this book named for a Moabite woman. And I think it's interesting that it's not named for Boaz. Because Boaz is a real hero in this story too. And he's an Israelite. And he's a man. But nope, the book is named for Ruth, the Moabite woman. God shows up in the lowly and despised. I think that's the point Paul was trying to make when he was writing his letter to the church in Corinth when he wrote, Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, 
to reduce to nothing things that are so that no one might boast in the presence of God. This story has really made me think um, about certain people that I've gotten to know along the way in ministry here in this church as I have watched our seniors move into a season where they are not able to take care of themselves. Oftentimes they have been taking care of uh, these caregivers who are called to a ministry of caregiving. And most of these people are Pacific Islanders. And they are immigrants. And they are saints. So I would often go into um, a member's home. Uh, often the person would be experiencing some dementia. The caregiver would be there with me. And I would read a scripture and something familiar, pray the Lord's Prayer, and the caregiver was just ex excited about hearing that scripture and praying the prayer um, as a person I was visiting. And then I remember even here in worship, Martha White, her son Ken had died, she had dementia, but her caregiver made sure that she was up and dressed and looking great and sitting just about six rows back. And the person sitting with her, her caregiver, so attentive, and so glad to be here in worship as well. Many times when I would do graveside services, the caregiver, there'd just be immediate family there, and the caregivers. And often the caregivers wept. And I had the sense that they would miss this loved one more than anybody. Just amazing servants, but outsiders. Immigrants. You know, I have this wedding quilt on the table here. This wedding quilt was actually given to us by Ellie Coffin, came from her, and she had suffered from dementia for many, many years, but she and her husband Jerry, who had Parkinson's, were able to stay in their home because they had these caregivers. Now, granted, it's expensive to have caregivers, and not all caregivers are stellar. But these caregivers were torn between their homeland and there and helping them to be cared for in their home. And this quilt to me is just symbolic, these little pieces of cloth, none of them impressive by themselves, but brought together are this beautiful work of God's covenant love and mercy and the way God is coming into our world and shining light into our world is through these little in and of themselves, nothing impressive or of great value. People. Ruth the Moabite, lowly and despised. And she prepares us to receive Jesus. And I think we need her story. We've always needed her story as a corrective. I think that's why it's in scripture. And I think we need her story today as a corrective. Because you stop and think about the attitude toward immigrants and refugees around the world. And there's been just a growing hardness of heart, perhaps because of the sheer volume of displaced people and unstable instability, people fleeing war, fleeing poverty. But I think, too, maybe in that there's also this perennial Fear of the stranger or wanting to exclude the stranger. I think of Paul's words in Hebrews 13, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, 
Some have entertained angels without knowing it. And why would Paul write that? Or why would that be in Hebrews? If there wasn't this kind of chronic way that we would not show hospitality to strangers. We need this story as a corrective for us. Last week I was with a group of faith leaders. Uh, We had a speaker, and this speaker, uh, his name is Robert Jones. He's CEO um, at the Public Religion Research Institute. He was doing and has done some research that was very relevant to our lives as faith leaders, and I have to say somewhat horrifying what he he revealed to us. There's a deck of questions that he would ask, uh, which he titled a racist index, and when he would uh, basically give that racist index to different groups of people among whites in this country, those who are Christian were more likely to be racist than those who were non-Christian by a large gap. That was horrifying to hear. He's written a book called White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. And I want to read to you this one paragraph describing his work. The findings are clear. The more racist attitudes a person holds, the more likely he or she is to identify as a white Christian. The results hold true for regular and infrequent churchgoers across geographical regions and for white evangelicals, mainline Protestants, and Roman Catholics. It's hard to argue with this conclusion that white supremacy is somehow genetically encoded into white Christianity in the United States. Wow. There was a lot in that talk, which I'd be glad to tell you more about in terms of the theological underpinnings and also the history behind that. But bottom line, we have work to do. We need this story. We need the story of Ruth the Moabite. And God knew that we needed this story to prepare us to receive Jesus, who's described in Isaiah 53 as one who was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, and as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him of no account. God shows up in the lowly and despised. I want to conclude by leading us in a creed. This creed was included in the Book of Common Worship in 2018. It was written by Jose Casal uh, from Tres Rios Presbytery in Midland, Texas, a state that also has, like ours, has had to deal with a lot of border issues. And it's called the Immigrant's Creed. So I invite you, as you see the words coming up there, to say what we believe using this immigrant's creed. I believe in Almighty God, who guided the people in exile and in exodus, the God of Joseph in Egypt and Daniel in Babylon, the God of foreigners and immigrants. I believe in Jesus Christ, a displaced Galilean who was born away from his people and his home, who fled his country with his parents when his life was in danger, and returning to his own country suffered the oppression of the tyrant Pontius Pilate, the servant of a foreign power, and who then was persecuted 
beaten, and finally tortured, accused, and condemned to death unjustly. But on the third day, this scorned Jesus rose from the dead, not as a foreigner, but to offer us citizenship in heaven. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the eternal immigrant from God's kingdom among us, who speaks all languages, lives in all countries, and reunites all races. I believe that the church is the secure home for the foreigner and for all believers who constitute it, who speak the same language and have the same purpose. I believe that the communion of the saints begins when we accept the diversity of the saints. I believe in forgiveness, which makes us all equal, and in reconciliation, which identifies us more than does race, language, or nationality. I believe that in the resurrection, God will unite us as one people in which all are distinct and all are alike at the same time. Beyond this world, I believe in life eternal in which no one will be an immigrant, but all will be citizens of God's kingdom, which will never end. Amen.